welcome to the preaching ministry of the Agape Baptist Church in George, South Africa. morning, church. It's a blessing to be with you this morning. If you would, please turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. Last week, we began the daunting task of working our way through the second longest book in the Bible, Genesis. Even though it is a very long book, my hope is that we will see the consistent theme of beginning and blessing throughout its pages. From the beginning of the universe to the beginning of a small promised family, we will see how God ordains each beginning and then blesses that which He begins. I argued last time that the book of Genesis is essential for every Christian because the book of Genesis was written for God's people and Gentile believers. All of us are part of the people of God. God inspired these words through his prophet Moses so that his people would know who God is, what God has created in the relationship between the two. It is essential that every Christian labor over the pages of Genesis because in its pages many of the lies of modern Christianity and secular thought will be exposed. Parents, for example, will come to realize why their innocent little child is adept at lying practically as soon as they're able to communicate. Men will come to realize why they are so tempted to abuse their authority, belittle their own wife, or avoid real work. Women find out why it is sometimes so hard to respect their own husband, even if their husband is doing what is right and good. And humanity as a whole finds out why pursuing toys, pleasures, and wealth for 90 years, followed by death, they'll realize why that is so unsatisfying in the end. Why do we sense the brokenness of our own bodies and souls? Why does death, decay, and injustice bother us so much if we've never known anything else? Why do we long for a better world if this is the only world we've ever had? The book of Genesis reveals that man was created by a good God to live in his good world while enjoying perfect relationship with him. And it reveals that God designed us to never be fully satisfied with anything less. For the next four weeks, this is what we will focus our attention on. A good God, a good creation, and perfect relationship. This is the essential foundation to the story of redemption. We must understand what has been lost before we can truly long for what has been promised. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, asking Him to help us as we wrestle with His truth this morning. Father, I thank You again for Your Word, and I thank You for this book of beginnings. And I thank You, Lord, that it is not just a factual history book or 
And it's not attempting to prove all scientific theories, but instead that it is a book about beginnings and a book about how you, in the beginning, blessed what you made. And how that even though sometimes we don't feel like we are the blessed people, that you have promised that in the end you will return this creation and your people back to that genuine, true, full, blessed condition and that it will be even better then than it was in the very beginning in the garden. Lord, help us as we look at what has been lost. And Lord, would you stir our hearts so that we will long for what has been promised. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning I hope to walk with you through Genesis chapter 1, verses 2 through 26, as we look at how God formed and filled His creation. First, we'll, we will look at verses 1 through 2, trying to make sense of the broad strokes being painted there. And then we will study each of the six days of creation individually. Something helpful to realize from the start is that days 1, 2, and 3 describe how God formed creation. And then days 4, 5, and 6 describe how God filled the creation He had just made. The chart upon the screen will help you see how the days correspond briefly Let me explain that day one, which is God forming day and night, corresponds to day four, where God filled the day and the night with the sun, moon, and the stars. Similarly, in day two, God formed with the waters in the sky, and then in day five, He filled the waters with creatures and filled the sky with creatures. Then in day three, God formed the land and brought forth plants, Then in day six, God filled the land with animals and man and then gave them plants to eat. But before we go any further, let's look at the broad brushstrokes of verses one and two. Verse one says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the of the waters. Last week I explained that verse 1 serves as a merism, which is a fancy word for listing two extremes in order to encompass them, to encompass the extremes, and then everything in between. It's like saying from A to Z, or from beginning to end. The goal of the statement is to include everything. So the sense of verse 1 is simply this, in the beginning God created everything. But as we'll see, verse 1 also contains the very first acts of creation. I suggest to you that God, to some extent, created three things in verse 1. In the beginning is God creating time. The heavens is God creating space. And the earth is God creating matter. Why am I making this point? Last week we already looked at the importance of time, so I will not rehearse that again. But when we move to verse 2, we see that the earth, which is matter, already exists in space. Since we know that God created everything, I suggest that verse 1 includes the creation of time, space, and matter to some extent. And then we will move directly into verse 2, 
Verse 2 continues from here describing what God has already made. Verse 2 says that the earth was without form and void. The Hebrew phrase translated without form and void is tohu vavohu. It describes something that is uninhabitable, uninhabitable, unprofitable, something that lacks the order or qualities necessary to, to sustain life. Later writers would use this term to describe the deep desert or a region that had been laid waste. Not only was the earth uninhabitable in verse 2, but it was also dark and completely covered by water. When Moses wrote this in 1440 B.C. after Israel's exodus from Egypt, his readers most likely imagined a flat earth like the people of the day. But with the help of scientists, we can see the image more clearly. Genesis 1 verse 2 describes a sphere of rock, or you could say of earth, completely surrounded by water, completely surrounded and completely dark. Scientists today tell us that if the earth had less shape, less variation in land altitude without mountains or deep ravines, then there would be a two kilometer deep ocean covering the entire surface of the earth. There is just that much water on our planet. The description of earth in verse 2 is is definitely possible, but more importantly, verse 2 describes the need for a good God, the need for a good God to form and fill this uninhabitable earth. And this is where we read, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters in verse 2. The phrase hovering over is used elsewhere in the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy 32 verses 9 through 11, it describes how God cares for His people by, for, by providing for them even in the midst of a wasteland. See if you can notice the comparison between Deuteronomy and Genesis 1. Deuteronomy 32 verse 9 says, The Lord's portion is His people. Jacob, His allotted heritage, He found him in a desert land and in the howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of His eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters or hovers over its young spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions. To hover over or to flutter over is a Hebrew picture of care and compassion. The object you hover over is the recipient of your attention and effort. So when verse 2 says that the Spirit of God hovered over the waters of the earth, it is telling us that God's care, compassion, attention, and effort are about to be expressed towards this world. It is at this point that we jump into verses 3 through 5 and the remainder of day 1. Looking in verse 3, it says, And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Here we are given the first picture of God speaking in the Scriptures. And we're told that His words are the power and the instrument of creation. Last week I spent most of our time together showing how the Scriptures repeatedly describe God's words as being one with God 
yet then also describe his word as a distinct person many times. We looked at the angel or messenger of the Lord in the Old Testament. And then in the New Testament, at how Jesus, John, and the other writers over and over again claim that Jesus is the Son of God and the very Word of God and that He is God. If all this sounds a bit confusing to you, then please go back and listen to that sermon. But the point is this. As Christian readers of the whole Bible, when we read the words... And God said, we must come to realize that this describes the will of the Father being accomplished through the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. So what is it that the Father says and the Son accomplishes and the Spirit empowers and fills? Looking at verse 3, it says, And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. Something interesting to note is that we are not told of a physical source for this light, since our sun was not yet created. Instead, we must realize that God is sufficient in and of himself to to sustain light without a star like our sun. God simply speaks, the word goes forth, and accomplishes and sustains the light. We're not given any other answer for this question in this verse. We cannot know for sure, but this makes me wonder to what extent did Jesus mean that He is the light of the world in the book of John? We know that He was figuratively comparing light to the truth which brings the knowledge of God. We do know that. But is it possible that Jesus was also referencing back to his act of creating and sustaining light all the way back in the very beginning? This sounds all the more possible when you read in Revelation of John's vision of the new heavens and the new earth and how there will be no need of sun or moon there because we will all live in the light of the combined glory of the Father and the Son. And that there will be no light, no night there. There will be no darkness, no night there. Speaking of the Son, who is the Word, John also writes this in the beginning of his Gospel. He says, the light, speaking of the Son, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. In verse 4, we are first introduced to a phrase that is often repeated, moving on in this passage. He says, And God saw that the light was good. This word, good, means desirable, useful, or pleasant to behold. God has a purpose in mind, and the light was exactly what was needed to accomplish His purpose. God, God goes on to separate the light from the darkness, calling the light day and calling the darkness Night And then, one of the most debated sentences in all of Scripture, verse 5, And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. This sentence, and specifically the definition of the word day, has been debated by theologians. That basically there are two opinions amongst those who love God and love His Word. I'm sure there are 
other variations and maybe one that I, I should have brought up this morning, but basically there are two opinions um, that I was able to study this week. First, the word day means, so this is one way of interpreting the word day. First, it means a 24-hour solar day and describes a young earth, a earth that is roughly 6,000 years old as you look through scripture and you count the years of the inhabitants, how long they lived. If you do the math, they estimate the age of the earth at 6,000 years old. The second option is that the word day means an indefinite period of time and describes an old earth much older than 6,000 years, and there are differing opinions on how old the earth would be. Since there has been disagreement on this issue throughout church history, and since thousands of articles and far too many books have been written on this subject for any of us to be able to read, I cannot hope to convince you either way this morning. In addition, if all we speak about in Genesis 1 is the age of the earth, then we will all miss the main point of why God inspired Moses to write these words to God's people. Genesis chapter 1 begins the story of redemption by telling God's people that God is good, that He created a good world, and that He designed us for perfect relationship with Him. That is the point. With this in mind, I will say this much about what I have discovered in my own study of the age of the earth. First, the most natural reading of Genesis 1 describes the earth as being formed and filled in six 24-hour solar days. Even opponents of a young earth view usually agree on this point. That is the most natural reading. Second, nothing from science has yet discredited the young earth view. Instead, science and history continue to affirm a natural reading of Scripture as a whole. Third, and finally, those who affirm an old earth view must be very careful as they begin to apply their view to other areas of theology. Like the special creation of man, the historical identity of Adam and Eve, and the death and decay of animals before the fall, just to name a few. These things being said about my view, which is the view that I can faithfully or confidently hold to a young earth view, that is my view right now. Um, That being said, the old age view and the young age view are not first order issues that Christians should separate over. Instead, we should enter into this conversation with humility and patience, realizing that there are men and women who believe something different than you, yet they still love the same Lord and still have the same respect that you do for His Word. But back to the passage at hand and the main point. We are starting to see a pattern emerging in the days of creation. We saw that God speaks, the Word accomplishes, God declares it good, and there was evening, and there was morning. This is the general pattern of the six days of creation. But why does it say evening and morning? Genesis 1 implies that the first day began with darkness and ends in daylight. 
It's for this reason that, that the beginning of the Jewish day was at night. Not midnight like our clocks. The beginning of the Jewish day was as the sun went down and the first three stars in heaven appeared. That is the beginning of their day. So Genesis is saying that in the beginning, the first day started in darkness. And if you think back to verse 2, when the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep, this is the evening or the night hours. Then God says, let there be light, and there was light. This is the morning or the day hours. If you put them together, they describe one day. Night and day make one full day. That's why it ends. Each one of these sections, it was evening and morning the first day. Moving on to day two in verse six, it says, And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. Up until this point, what we see is an uninhabitable rock covered completely by water that has hours of darkness and hours of light. But now on day two, God creates what we would call Earth's atmosphere, the protective shield between us and the rest of space. We label our Earth's atmosphere into several distinct layers, most of which have little to no water present. But there was no such distinctions to ancient peoples. For them, there was just the waters above, the clouds that dropped the rain, and the waters below, the seas, rivers, and lakes. On day two, God formed the atmosphere, separating the atmosphere from the water that covered the entire face of the earth. The expanse or space in between the water above and the water below, he called heaven which in this context could also be translated sky. On day two, God formed the water and the sky into places that could be inhabited. On day three, beginning in verse nine, it says, And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to its own kinds, and trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the third day. So at the start of day three, We have a mostly smooth sphere of rock, completely covered by water, with a protective atmosphere around it, and there are hours of light and hours of darkness. So that's how the day begins. But on day three, God changes the smooth surface of the earth, raising up dry land out of the waters. God calls the dry land earth, and he calls the surrounding waters seas. And he doesn't stop there. He goes on to create plants able to produce seeds, all types of vegetation, and trees able to produce fruit. Also in this passage, we are introduced to a new phrase, the phrase according to their own kinds. 
We will see this phrase again in the chapter, but when speaking about plants and fruit trees producing seed according to their own kinds, it is pointing to the order that God has designed within creation. It is an arrow pointing directly to order. The word kinds could also be translated category. A category and a category is a way of grouping things in, uh, based on some common characteristic or quality. So in plain English, this passage is saying that God designed plants to drop seeds that produce more plants like them. So when God designed a plum tree, he designed it so that when its seed drops into the ground and germinates, forming a new plant, what you get is something very much like a plum tree. When plum seeds fall to the ground, it is not going to produce green grass. It's just not. When a farmer sows a field full of canola seeds, he doesn't go back and check a few months later to see if watermelons came up out of the ground. God designed the world with order, with a purpose, the opposite of chaos and disorder. Yes, there are variations within kinds, but God designed a boundary between the kinds so that they would only reproduce in a predictable way within their kinds according to his purpose. It was not a free-for-all and chaos that came out of God's creation. In the first three days, God transforms an uninhabitable dark ocean into a good world. And now, over the next three days, he is going to fill this world. Beginning in day four and verse 14 says this, And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights. Um, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. Day four corresponds to day one. On day one, God forms the day and the night. Then on day four, God fills the day with the greater light and fills the night with the lesser light and the stars. We call the lights that God made by three names. The greater light that rules the day is the sun. The lesser light that rules the night is the moon. And the other lights fall into the general category of the stars. Notice with me the purpose of all these lights. Their purpose was for the good of those who dwell on the earth. To separate day from night. And as a way to tell the time. And as a way to keep track of the seasons and years. As with every act during the six days of creation, a good God creates a good world to be enjoyed by those who are in perfect relationship with him on day four god fills the day 
and he fills the night with lights in the heavens for the good of his creatures. Now in day 5, beginning in verse 20, it says, And God said, Let the waters swarm with, the swarms, of, with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters and the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning the fifth day. Day five corresponds back to day two. On day two, God forms the waters in the sky. Then on day five, God fills the waters with creatures and fills the sky with birds. God formed a good world and is now filling it with good creatures. But think about this word creatures. Verse 20 is the first time we come across this Hebrew word which means a living thing. Yes, God created plants on day 3, but here on day 5 we seem to have a new tier of creation. On day 5 we see the creation of water creatures and flying creatures which are different from rocks, water, light, sky, and even different from plants and trees. Repeatedly in the creation account, we will see that there is a higher importance placed on creatures, the living things with the breath of life in them, than there is on rocks, water, light, sky, and even plants and trees. There is something unique about creatures who have the breath and blood of life within them. Also, this is the first time we see the phrase, God bless them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. God speaks His own blessing, His own favor over the water creatures and over the birds, giving them the command to multiply and fill the waters and the earth. This is a picture of a good God who allows His unmerited favor to rest on what he has made. He blesses it because he made it. This God begins all things and then blesses that which he begins. Moving on to day 6 in verse 24 it says, And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kinds. And God saw that it was good. Did you hear a bit of a theme there, according to its kinds? Day six corresponds again to day three. On day three, God forms the land and then creates plants. Then on day six, God fills the land with living creatures and then gives them plants to each eat, which we will look at next time. Repeatedly, in verses 21, 24, and 25, we again see the phrase that God made the creatures according to their kind. We looked at this before with the plants and trees, and I suggest the same answer here in regards to all living creatures. God designed living creatures with order and according to certain kinds or categories. God's design is the opposite of chaos 
and disorder. Any chaos and disorder that you see in the world today is due to the fall of man and the curse that came upon this world. It is not part of God's original creation. So when God says that He made creatures according to their kinds, we can know that He has placed boundaries within the created order. And one of the clearest markers of that boundary is evidence in how creatures reproduce. Fish reproduce with fish. Birds reproduce with birds. Cats reproduce with cats. And dogs reproduce with dogs. And when two dogs reproduce, you may get a very strange looking dog, but you never get a cat or a mouse or a bird. This is the simplest explanation for the concept of God making creatures according to their kinds. And it draws the picture that a good God has formed a good world and has filled it with good creatures according to a good order and with a purpose. And it is the very opposite of disorder and chaos. Verse 26 begins a very important portion of Scripture where God is going to unveil the pinnacle of His creation. He has formed the earth and He has filled the earth, but now in verses 26-31, through 31, we will begin to see why God has done this. Verse 26 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image. After our likeness. We will stop there this morning. And Lord willing, we will study this passage together next time. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that we as a church would rejoice in the truth that you have given us. And if we will take the time as individuals and as a group together to to focus on them, to study them, to labor over the pages of your word, we will see that there are so many lies that would take hold of us. That there are so many discouraging things being bantered around as truth that you have declared as false. Lord, I pray that you would, that you would open our hearts and our minds to see that you are truly a good God. That the world you created, it is a good world. It was a perfect world. And it's a world that is now suffering, groaning under the weight of the curse that is brought on by humanity. Yet, Lord, may we rejoice in the knowledge that you have promised to restore all things. And not only that, but you have promised to make it even better, which is hard for us to imagine. Would all of us, Lord, go out and hope and enjoy into this world that has no hope because they believe that this world is nothing but chaos and disorder, that we came from nothing, that we were made for nothing, and that we are going nowhere. Lord, would you guard us against this lie of the devil? And would you fill us with joy and hope because you are a good God and you have promised us eternity and a new creation a new heaven and the earth 
where we will enjoy perfect relationship with you. In Jesus' name, amen.